Hello, church, and welcome to Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival installment number 18. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for the last several weeks, um, but this week we're going to go back into the Old Testament and recover a theme we've been talking about, which is the smallness and the hiddenness of the kingdom of God. Remember the mustard seed, remember the yeast, feeding of the 5,000. From a small thing comes great things. And so tonight's story is about Elijah, and we see where a small event bears great fruit. A small, quiet event bears great fruit. So the theme is similar to what we've seen before. God working in small, invisible, silent ways to make change in the world. Our passage is from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 9 through, let's see, 18. 1 Kings 19, verses 9 to 18. At that place, Elijah came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Lord God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, have thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You shall also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abelmagola, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What's that about? Well, first off, we have Elijah. Now, Elijah shows up again and again and again in Scripture, Old and New Testaments, who, aside from Moses, is probably the greatest of all prophets. He's actually oftentimes compared to Moses. 
one of the greatest of all prophets, who, like Jesus, ascended into heaven, and who is considered a prophet in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So let's look at this week's passage. It opens with this phrase, at that place he came to a cave. Now, this is very important because the place with the cave to which Elijah comes is none other than Mount Horeb. The importance of this fact can hardly be overstated because Mount Horeb has other names, most familiar to us being Sinai. Yes, Elijah has arrived at the mountain of God, the mountain on which Moses, hundreds of years earlier, had received the law. It is the holiest of mountains, and Elijah undertakes a journey of 40 days and 40 nights to reach it. And when he does, he is exhausted and afraid and depressed. Along the way, he, just, he expresses a desire to die. His fear has its roots in his role as a prophet. What's he afraid of? He's got plenty, it turns out. Hard work, risky work being a prophet, and our hero has just about had it. Here's what's driving him to the wilderness. Here's what drove him all the way to Mount Horeb, which is far from civilization. The nation of Israel, once unified, is now divided. The southern kingdom, Judah, has retained Jerusalem and all the customs associated with the temple and traditional religion, Jewish religion. The northern kingdom has retained the name Israel, but has been severed from traditional religious life and the social cohesion it brings. The capital of Israel is Samaria. So the late monarch of the northern kingdom, King Omri, faced two problems. Internal stress of having lost Jerusalem and the temple, and number two, the external stress caused by neighboring states like Phoenicia and Assyria. So, he manages these problems. He arranged a marriage between his son Ahab and a woman named Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Sidon in Phoenicia. Notably, she was also a priestess of Baal, one of the gods of the Phoenicians. Well, Ahab eventually becomes king, of course, and Jezebel queen. And when this happens, a temple of Baal is built in Samaria, in Israel, and Jezebel imports a large entourage of priests and prophets of Baal to staff the temple. These moves encourage internal stability and help address the problem of internal incohesion. I'm sorry, these moves encourage international stability and help address the problem of internal cohesion. So Baal is overtaking Yahweh as the central god of Israel, the northern kingdom, and it is excellent politics. But it is bad religion. Into this scene, back in 1 Kings 17, steps Elijah. Unlike other prophets, we don't know how the word of the Lord first came to him, how he was called, or any other details of his backstory. We are simply told that Elijah has some hard words for Ahab along the lines of something like this. The Lord God of Israel lives and is a much better God than Baal, and to prove it, there's going to be a drought. Several, And there is a drought, of course. Several chapters later, he returns to Ahab and gives him another earful of prophecy. 
and then asks Ahab to assemble all his priests and prophets of Baal. He wants to have a showdown, and you know what happens. The priests of Baal assemble, all 450 of them, and they pray all day to Baal to light their altar, to bring fire down from heaven to light their altar. They go on and on and on all day long, nothing, until sunset. And then it's Yahweh's turn, and Elijah sets up his altar, pours water on it three times, and then prays once to Yahweh to bring fire down to light the altar, and fire flashes down from heaven. God shows up in the fire, and boom, Yahweh wins the, wins the competition. Now, this all happens on Mount Carmel near the Mediterranean coast, but the point is, is that Yahweh showed up in the fire, spectacular, obvious fashion, and Baal did not. Yahweh shows up, Baal doesn't, and the prophets and priests of Baal, the same ones that were imported by, from Phoenicia by Jezebel, they end up slaughtered by the people at, under Elijah's direction. So they get killed. There's blood. There's violence. Now, Ahab seems to be a little bit on the calm side. He seems to take all this in sort of fine philosophical stride, but Jezebel is not so easily cowed. She gets pretty steamed and threatens Elijah's life, and so Elijah heads for the hills. In contrast to his boldness with the prophets of Baal, he is afraid, wandering in the desert alone to Beersheba, which is extreme southern end of the southern kingdom, and then goes beyond that, 40 days and 40 nights, which of course is Scripture's standard time period for trial and purgation, he is looking to die. He has had enough, but thanks to divine provision, he's given enough food and water to reach the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. So when he arrives at the mountain, he finds a cave. This is where our scene opens. He finds a cave and spends the night there. He's running from Jezebel. Now, those who composed the book of Kings and all early readers recognize when it says, Elijah rested in a cave at Horeb, it means that he rested in the cave at Horeb. And by the cave, I mean the same one in Exodus where Moses crouched as God passed by. Moses saw God from the cleft in the rock, from the cave on Sinai. That was Moses's great theophany. He saw God, the backside of God, and he came down the mountain with his face shining. So it's clear when Elijah shows up at the cave at Horeb that we're getting set up here for a second theophany. That, that's a $15 theology word that means showing of God, an appearance of God. We're, we're lining up here for a second theophany, a second showing of God at Sinai. Here's what happens. He rests a while, Elijah does, and the next day the word of the Lord comes to Elijah there in that holy place. And what does God say? What are you doing here, Elijah? Asks the Lord. And Elijah's response is one for the ages. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Now, Elijah here is full of self-pity and is really overstating his problems. He just killed all the prophets of Baal himself. 
prophets of Israel have not been killed off. Um, the context of 1 Kings, if you read around this passage, before and after this passage, you'll see that there are plenty of faithful worshipers remaining in Israel, plenty of faithful worshipers of Yahweh remaining in Israel, and that Elijah is not the only prophet of the Lord left. So he's still tired and cranky and depressed, and he overstates his problem. And the Lord does not immediately reply to this. Instead, Yahweh tells Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain, for I am about to pass by. Again, evoking the language of Exodus 33, in which God passes by Moses outside the same cave on the same mountain. So Elijah goes. And behold, a great wind blows, splitting mountains and smashing rocks, but we are told God is not in the wind. An earthquake shakes the land, but God, you guessed it, is not in the earthquake. Then fire falls down from heaven, but God is not in the fire. Now all of this, friends, notice, stands in sharp contrast to what happened earlier on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal when Elijah called fire down from heaven in a spectacular show of Yahweh's presence and power. So God was in that fire, but now there is fire, and God is not in it. This also stands in contrast to Moses' experience at Sinai. In that earlier drama, back in Exodus, the Lord appears in precisely those elements of creation from which Yahweh is absent for Elijah. For Moses, God was revealed precisely as thunder and earthquakes and fire. And at the same exact geographical location. And back then for Moses, God is very much present in these things, in these aspects of nature, these elemental realities of nature. So God is not present in the elements of earth and air and fire for Elijah. It seems that even nature and this hurts me a little bit, being such a fan of creation, even nature and all its power and awesomeness and beauty is not a sufficient symbol for the Lord God in this story. But Yahweh said he would come by, so what gives? Not in the earthquake, not in the wind, not in the fire. Yahweh does come by. After all of this noise and violence and commotion, Elijah hears, sound of sheer silence. Literally translated is as a voice, a barely audible whisper. And the Lord was in the silence. And when Elijah hears it, he responds accordingly. He wraps his face in his mantle and stands in stillness at the entrance to the cave. There is a branch of theology, it's not very well advertised and probably not very popular, but it's called apophatic theology. That's a big word, apophatic theology. This particular branch of theology emphasizes the otherness of God, the ways in which God is utterly unlike us, unlike creation, unlike anything found under the sun or in space for that matter. 
It seeks God not in images of creation or in, image, or, or in graven images, but in silence and in empty places. But it is also aware that these two are also images and are limited. Ultimately, this kind of theology, apophatic theology, or sometimes called negative theology, is skeptical of all images of God and values direct and intimate knowledge of God experiential knowledge of God. On paper, it all sounds a little bit weird, but it is a foundational and deeply influential branch of theology, and our present story is one of its central texts. The Lord God exists, whatever exists might mean in this context, beyond all elements and beyond all images, and may be found most truly in silence. Sometimes God comes into our lives in loud, obvious ways, and sometimes God comes in still, quiet ways. Elijah knows that sometimes it is the small, quiet ways that are the most powerful and the most life-changing, the most awe-inspiring, and the most foundational for a life of faith. Now for our wrap-up, our denouement. As Elijah stands there, face wrapped in cloth, stunned by the silence, stunned by the silence, the Lord asks again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah offers the same self-pitying response. And again, for whatever reason, Yahweh does not engage Elijah's words. Instead, Yahweh gives Elijah some instructions. Go, he says, anoint a new king and also anoint your replacement. In other words, you're done now, Elijah. Just as Elijah's early work was spectacular and obvious, his late work is quiet and hidden. Just as God sometimes enters our lives in obvious ways, and sometimes God enters our lives in small, quiet ways. And notably, it is this small, quiet work that ensures the survival of a faithful remnant in Israel. The Lord works in small, hidden ways. It's interesting to note that Elijah's career is short and stressful. He actually does very little active prophetic work. All in all, he speaks about 500, maybe 600 words to kings and queens and priests and also to the people. For comparison, this Bible study comprises about 1,800 words, maybe 2,000 words. So in the Bible, Elijah speaks in total about a third, at most, a third of the words I am speaking to you tonight. And only about a third of those are to people in power. Yet, as I've said, he preserves a remnant of faithful people in Israel. And it is Elijah, as I've said, who shows up again and again and again in Scripture, who stands among the greatest of all prophets, who, like Jesus, ascended into heaven, who is considered a prophet in the great religions of the West, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It is as we have seen during our time in Matthew. It is oftentimes in the small, seemingly inconsequential things that the most lasting difference is made for the kingdom of heaven. I love you all and I miss you all. Have a good week and I'll see you next time.